metal boat on, on the water. You know, how many of you say that's not smart? How many of you say that's South Louisiana? All right, so, well, there you go. I remember one time we were at football practice with the mighty Wampus Cats in Leesville, and, uh, you know, as you're on a football field, there is no shelter anywhere, and a storm came up, and, and it, was, it was pretty loud. The thunder was pretty loud, and guys were a bit anxious in the huddle, and then I'll never forget uh, lightning hit pretty close to the field, and guys never stopped to ask. Some of those guys never stopped running until they got back across the street. And I still laughed when I, all I saw was the back of their jersey. And they just didn't even ask. Coaches were ducking and everything. And uh, it was this uh, funny moment of, uh, well, and scary simultaneously. But funny because uh, all of us survived. Um, but dangerous because of being out in the middle with no shelter. How many of you know it's not just shelter that's important, but the right kind of shelter? When you're in a storm, and we know that uh, if I am out in a field and there just happens to be one metal stand, how many of you think you're going to run and stay in the metal stand? Uh, how many of you know it may not even be safe to run and hide under the tree? We've seen stories of these things. Uh, so it's not just the shelter, but the right kind of shelter. And one of the things I think about is you see these storm chasers on TV, and they, from a distance, see the storm. This morning, I want us to pause and, and see the storm that's coming from the distance. And that storm is the storm of God's wrath. And God's wrath is coming, and you're on a field, right? And there is no shelter. So what do you do? What do you do? Here's the incredible picture of the Bible. God's wrath is coming like a storm. There is no shelter to run to. And at the last moment, God says, I have one for you. And he puts forward his son. And the son comes and covers you in that field as the wrath passes over. And his son bears the full brunt of all of that, that you might be safe. This is the picture of the gospel. And this is something that should be on our hearts constantly. We should never go a day that we don't ponder the substitutionary atonement of Christ this is what God did in Egypt. He said to the Israelites and to the Egyptians, I'm coming. I'm coming. And as his presence came with the full brunt of that wrath, he made a way. He made a shelter for those Israelites in the sacrifice and substitution of those lambs. But he came in the storm of his wrath, left what was deserved because of our sin in the homes of the Egyptians, but left mercy in the homes of the Israelites. I pray that the fact that we know God's mercy rather than his wrath uh, does not grow old to us. Romans 8, 31, 33 says this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Sometimes it seems that God is not for us. If we were to just look at our circumstances, whether we have disease, whether we have children who have disease, whether we've lost our job, sometimes with our physical eyes, it doesn't look like God is for us. How can we know that God is for us. Well, in Romans 8, he goes on to say this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. You just studied in Revelation 12. You know, the wonderful thing is, though Satan might want to accuse us, he has no place in heaven. And so anything that he would accuse us of, Christ's blood has covered that. And he must be silent. Romans 5.8 says that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
I share all of it because we're on a journey. If you're in our Sunday night class, and by the way, if you didn't get your book for our Sunday night class there, the extras are right here on the front row if you want to pick one up before you come tonight. One of the things that we're trying to help our people see is what is the main storyline of the Bible? The main storyline is God's redemption of his people in Christ Jesus. And we want our people to be able to articulate the gospel from every genre of the Bible. We should be able to because Jesus says, they all point to me. They all point to me. One of the joys of walking through Ruth 2 today, where we'll be, is we will see the gospel. You will be equipped to articulate the gospel from Ruth chapter 2. Friends, it's not just about uh, shelter. It's about the right kind of shelter. And God is the refuge to whom we want to run. I want you to stand with me. We're going to read in Ruth chapter 2. And we're going to read beginning in verse 10. And here's what we see. This is Ruth. It says, Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Father, we thank you for the songs that we've sung that have reflected what it means for you to be our refuge, for you to be our tower, for you to be our salvation. God, thank you for the images that we're going to see in the kindness of Boaz and such displays of uh, ultimately your kindness to us. Father, we pray for clarity as we study this passage. We pray for your spirit to light it up. Father, we pray that we would never lose sight of the image that the storm of wrath that's coming because of our sin, there's been a way made to escape, but at great cost to you. We can come under your wings, but only because of the great cost it was to you and to Christ Jesus. Father, would you make the gospel clear to us, and would you cause the gospel to change the way we live and to make a difference in each day of our lives that we might then make a gospel difference in this city? Teach us now from your word. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. I've studied Ruth 2 this week, and there are three aspects, three insights that I want to share with you. And the first one is this, just unbelievable character. As we see Ruth and we see Boaz, we see two of the people who have, I think, some of the the brightest character in all of the Bible and who they are and what they do. And let's begin with Ruth. And I would challenge us, we should pray for our daughters to grow to be a woman like Ruth. We should pray for our daughters to grow to be a woman like Ruth. And here's what I mean. First of all, a woman who's willing to work. Look in verse 2 of chapter 2. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So when we left off last week, Ruth, Naomi, Orpah, their husbands are all dead. And they have been brought back. Ruth and Naomi have come back to Bethlehem. But now they're sitting around looking at each other and they're hungry. Who's going to solve this problem? What are we going to do? And so Ruth says to Naomi, let me go work. Let me go work. So we find later in verse 3, the very next verse. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Look in verse 7. 
It says, she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. And look at what Ruth does. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So the field supervisor is saying, look, this woman came. She's been here from early morning. She's been working hard and she just only has had one short rest. One short rest, right? All right, look in verse 15. After lunch, look at what Ruth does. When she rose to glean, after lunch, she's like, well, back to work. Back to the task that's at hand. Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. Look at verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Now, let's go back. Let's do a pop quiz. When did she get there? Early morning. And when did she glean until? Evening. How many of you employers wish you had an employee like Ruth? I wonder how many of us demonstrate this work ethic in our workplace. And we should, friends, because of the gospel. We should because of the gospel. She works until evening. And what she's going to do is she's going to beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah of barley. And that's cool because we keep a lot of ephahs at our house. And so I enjoyed, when I saw that, I was like, wow, that's a lot. I had no idea what it was. So anyways, we find out that what she beats out is about a week's worth of food for she and Naomi. But friends, that's not the end of Ruth's work habits. Look in verse 23. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So the end of the barley and wheat harvest means for the next seven weeks, Ruth would go to that field and she would work. She would work. She would work. What an incredible statement. I think Ruth works harder than some men I know. All right? What we want to pray is, God, would you allow our daughters to be a woman like Ruth, a woman who's willing to work? Hold your place in Ruth and turn to Proverbs 31. As I shared with you last week uh, in the Hebrew Bible, you have Proverbs 31, and then the very next book in their order is Ruth. And in Proverbs 31, obviously there's a woman who is displayed here as a, uh, an example for us, but in her work ethic. Beginning in verse 10, here's what it says. An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it with the fruit of her hands. She plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth in wisdom, and teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. I'll stop right there, and my intention here is not to beat up any of the women in the room. I look at this, and I'm like, dog, she work, works way harder than I do. She makes, she works, she crafts, she does everything. She's what we would call a Renaissance woman. There's nothing this woman can't do, apparently, right? She's gifted in every way. All I want to say is that as I studied Ruth, I was challenged by her work ethic, 
And that we ought to pray that our daughters would have the same willingness. I'm not saying they get a job. If they're in the house, wherever they are, we have the same mindset. We're not going to be those that are idle. We're going to be those that are willing to work. We'll see this. The second thing about Ruth. We should pray for our daughters to grow to be a woman like Ruth. Ruth is a woman who's humble rather than presumptuous or entitled. I love that in verse 2, she says to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean. She doesn't just say to her mother-in-law, here's what I'm going to do, lady. What do you think about that? She says out of respect, can I go? Can I do that? And then when she gets there, look at what happens in verse 7. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. The wall provided that those who were poor, the widows, the orphans, they could come and glean, and they didn't have to ask. God already provided for it. But Ruth is a woman of such humility that on top of that, she says, is it okay if I do this? I'm not going to be presumptuous. Is it okay? And there's no sense of entitlement in her. And I appreciate the humility that we see here in Ruth. Here's the third thing about Ruth. Uh, We want to pray for our daughters to be a woman who's considerate of others. Look in verse 18. Ruth had eaten, and she had enough left over after she was satisfied, so she kept it. In verse 18, it says, She took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. I love that Ruth is considerate. I love that Ruth wasn't like, Man, I'm stuffed. I'm just going to throw the rest of this junk in the trash. I love that Ruth, though she was away from Naomi, had Naomi in her mind and was compassionate and wasn't just selfish and was considerate and brought it home to her. There's a fourth thing about Ruth. She's a woman who's faithful. I want you to look at the very last sentence in this chapter in verse 23. And here's what it says. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Does anything else really need to be added to that statement? I mean, does it? I mean, come on, right? This is a woman who's faithful. You know, Ruth could have abandoned Naomi. Ruth could have left Naomi on her own. Ruth could have gone off to find a younger man. But what a testimony of her faithfulness. Ruth lived with her mother-in-law. And we know that it was at great cost of that. You know, in my life, I got to see this play out in my own home. My dad died in 1999, and my aunt died in 2000. And my aunt never married and no children. And so my sister and I were the only grandchildren. And so when my father and my aunt died, their mother was still alive. Well, my parents at that point obviously were divorced. But one of the most incredible pictures that I got to see was that my mother said, come into our home. And for the rest of my grandmother's days, my mother and my sister took care of her. What's interesting is that one of the people who said the cruelest things about my mother was my grandmother. And yet, what an incredible picture of grace. So when I read this, (laughs) yes, there you go, Mom. When I see this, uh, Mom would tell you, it's not a testimony to Mom, it's a testimony to the gospel in her. It's a testimony of those who've been forgiven much are able to forgive much. Those who have received much good are able to display good. So when I read she lived with her mother-in-law, I was was grateful for what I, I see here in Ruth. One last one about Ruth. We want to raise our daughters to be women who seek refuge in God. Verse 12 says, The Lord repay you for what you've done. A full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. We want our young ladies to understand we don't just seek refuge in the arms of a man. We seek refuge primarily in the arms of God. 
We want to teach them what it means to seek refuge in his encompassing arms primarily. All right? And so what we see, I think that's the key to the whole chapter, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But Ruth is being provided for because of where she has sought shelter. Remember, it's not just shelter, the right kind of shelter. Let's look at Boaz. I believe after studying chapter 2, not only should we pray for our daughters to be like Ruth, we should pray for our sons to grow to be a man like Boaz. In the first place, a man who has a good name. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And again, I love what the author of Ruth is doing because if you left it to Naomi, it's the end of the world, right? It's all sad. Ruth 2, chapter 2 opens up and there's like, hey, there's a man. You're not alone. There is another guy. And Naomi's like, I forgot him. You know, she's all, all up in her sadness. So, and not only is he a man, he's a very good man, all right? It says that he is a worthy man. Lots of ways this is used in the text. It's described as a mighty man, a man of valor, a man strength and what it's saying about Boaz is is that he is an admirable man Proverbs 22 1 I memorized it when I was a, a young boy in Bible drill growing up Proverbs 22 1 says a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches and favor is better than silver or gold a good name we want to raise our young men so that they have a good name Boaz's name was and who he was and one of the things that uh, I think about you know I don't know how many of you have studied Song of Solomon lately I particularly haven't and we Arabella and I have not read through that at night yet but uh, one of the things that we learn about Solomon it says his name is like perfume poured out what does that mean that means when when someone uh, sees Aaron and they say Aaron or they, or they won't go Drakkar Stetson you know does anybody still wear Stetson? <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Don, for laughing at that. Uh, I was like, man, who, who wears Stetson? But I remember the commercials, right? So it's not just that they say our name and they're like, hmm, fruity. You know, that's not what it means. It means that it is a sweet aroma. This is a good man. We want to raise our sons to be men like Boaz, who are men of a good name, good character. And when their name is spoken, there's nothing bad about them. Number two, we want to raise our sons to be men whose character is not dependent on their circumstances. Hold your place in Ruth and look back again to the end of Judges. The very last verse in Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Those were the circumstances around Boaz. What we want to raise are men who are good men in bad times. So what we find out about Boaz is he is a godly man and his circumstances don't determine his character. His character is different from his circumstances. We are never the only one. What I love is so many times when we stand for God, we think we're the only one. In this passage, we see there are two good people. We see Ruth and we see Boaz who are two good people of character. We are not the only one. Remember, Elijah thought he was the only one. He wasn't, right? And so, but even if we are, then let us be that man. Then let us be that man. So, all right. Third thing about Ruth. A man whose godliness is evident everywhere he goes. In verse 4, we find Boaz coming on the scene. It says in verse 4 of chapter 2, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Jesus said, From the overflow of the heart come the words of the what? Mouth. 
And the first words that Boaz is recorded as saying is, the Lord be with you. So we want a man whose godliness is evident everywhere he goes. We don't want men who hide their godliness when they go to school. We don't want men who hide their godliness when they go to work. Boaz is being godly in the workplace. This isn't the tabernacle. He's out in the fields. It doesn't change his godliness, and his godliness flows out of him. We want to raise those type of young men. Number four, we want a man who initiates. Look in verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. I just want to say that the essence of biblical manhood is not domination, it's initiation. You lead. You may not be the best Bible person in your home at this point, but you are expected to be the one who initiates and says, let's study the Bible. You may not be the deepest of prayers, but you are to initiate and say, let's pray. You may not know what all God is requiring of of you, but you initiate. Let's care for orphans. Let's do this. It's about initiation. I love that Boaz doesn't sit back and say, I hope Ruth talks to me. In our day and age, and it's interesting even in contemporary dating, uh, we, we see girls who are initiating. There's a word here. We want to raise men who initiate. We want to raise men who lead and who aren't afraid to step out in the first place. Number five, we want a man who protects and provides for those in need. Chapter 2, verse 8, here's what he's saying to her when he initiates. Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. We want to raise men who protect and provide for those in need. It's interesting because in verse 12, he is going to say this blessing, the Lord repay you for what you've done. I find it interesting that as we ask God to bless and provide for others, has it ever occurred to you he may want to use you in that process? So Boaz is saying, look, pay, repay Ruth for what she's done for Naomi. And God wants to use Boaz in this process. I wrote a little blog entry this week uh, called Be the Somebody. Be the Somebody. It's amazing, you know, there are some folks whose spiritual gifts are to point out things, right? Not do anything about them, but point them out, right? And you recognize them because they will say things such as somebody ought to or somebody needs to or I know of a need that's not been met yet right? Those are my favorites. And so I pondered that in light of the Good Samaritan. Isn't it incredible that the Good Samaritan didn't go on uh, to Jericho and be like, somebody back there needs help. Can anybody do something about that? We see what the Good Samaritan did was he was the somebody. He used his own oil and wine. He used his own donkey. He gave up his own good night's sleep. He was that somebody. And in this passage with Boaz, I'm glad that Boaz didn't say to Ruth, I hope somebody helps you. We want to raise our young men to be the somebody. We're going to protect those who need help. The last two, we want to raise a man who's encouraging and kind. Look in verse 13. Then she said, I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. Uh, In Colossians 4, we find that our conversations should be full of grace. We want to raise men who are encouraging in their words, gracious in their talk. The last one from this is we want to raise men who are generous. In 14 through 16, it says this. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. 
So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young man, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. We see Boaz's generosity. He's even going to let her do it for the entire harvest as the passage ends. And there's this generosity that's due. And we, we want to raise our men that are the same way. We don't want to raise those that give and give with a bad attitude. <laughs> we want to raise those that generosity flows out of them. Now, let me give you some application. Where do you think these types of sons and daughters come from? They come from moms and dads who have the same character as Ruth and Boaz. That's where these types of sons and daughters come from. They come from moms and dads who have this character. And I wondered, as I read Ruth and Boaz, are these character traits evident in us, moms and dads? Are they evident in our lives? Are our ladies willing to work and humble? Are our men those who have a good name and who seek to protect the helpless? One of the things I enjoyed most about studying Ruth, too, was this unbelievable character that you see in both Ruth and Boaz. My prayer is these are the types of people we are as well. Our only hope for that, Christ Jesus. It's not about being good people. It's about being what? Gospel people. Our only hope for living and displaying these things is the gospel. Now, having studied all of this, now here's where I break the bad news to you. Uh, that's not the main point of the text. It was just good stuff, and good stuff that I felt needed to be shared. But Ruth and Boaz are not the heroes of Ruth chapter 2. Ruth and Boaz are not the main points of Ruth chapter 2. We see not only unbelievable character, but in Ruth chapter 2, we see unmistakable providence. While the author wants us to be challenged by the characters of both Ruth and Boaz, neither one of them are the main stars. The main star of chapter 2 is God. And the main point is that he's faithful to those who take refuge in the Lord. That's the main point of this text. God is faithful to those who take refuge in him. Now, uh, some of us are slow, including myself, and so we may not be able to see it. I don't see it. I don't even see and the Lord's mentioned just a few times. I don't even see him on this page. All right, so let's do a bit of a pop quiz. Look back in chapter 1, verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she'd heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. I'm going to ask you some questions. There'll probably be a common answer, but we'll see. Who provided a way for Naomi, though she was in Moab, to hear about the famine being gone in Judah? Who do you think made a way for Naomi to hear this? God, good, you people are sharp this morning, all right? As chapter 1 ends, we see in the very last verse, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Who provided the barley harvest? All right, good. Who provided Ruth with the desire and ability to work? I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. Okay. Who led Ruth to Boaz's field? All right, you see this? This is one of my favorites. It says in verse 3, So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come, and in the Hebrew it says, she chanced to chance. And it's intentionally pointing to say it wasn't chance. So she happened to come, right, to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. 
And we know that Ruth didn't do it on purpose because she doesn't even know Boaz. She doesn't know he exists. According to Naomi, there's nobody, right? So she's not doing it on purpose, but she winds up in this field. Now, here's what's even more interesting. Verse 4, and behold, anytime you see behold in the Bible, you should just open your eyes real wide because the author says, look at this. Don't miss this. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Well, 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 all right. Who led Boaz to Bethlehem at the same time that Ruth was in Boaz's field. Who did it? No, E-Harmony. E-Harmony, they knew it. And they're like, Boaz, there's a girl that has the same character qualities as you. She'll be in the field. right? Yes, God, all right? God did this. He led her. And one of my favorite things, you know, Ruth just happens to find Boaz's field. Boaz just happens to be there at the same time. It's because God just happens to be sovereign. That's why, right? Let's go on with this. Who do you think provided the kindness in Boaz? God, right? He had a good mom and dad. Yeah, God, all right? Who provided a week's worth of food for Ruth and Naomi? God. Who provided a safe place for Ruth to work? God. Who provided a year's worth of food for Ruth and Naomi? That's what she would have accumulated by the end of those seven weeks. She would have accumulated a year's worth of food for she and Naomi. But who ultimately provided that? God. And one last one, who provided a redeemer for Ruth and Naomi? God. Now, here's what I want to say to you. Don't take my word for it. Take Naomi's. Take Naomi's. Do you remember when we left off with Naomi? Look back in chapter 1, verse 20. She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Marah, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I love it. I wonder if people just saw her like, What's up, bitter? I go out in public. How are you doing today, right? Some of you know these people, right? Some of you are these people. But, so, do not call me Naomi. Call me Marah, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? There's nothing pleasant. Don't call me pleasant. And then we see... When Ruth says, hey, can I go? Naomi just kind of struggles out. She's like, fine. Right? She says, go, my daughter. In the Hebrew, it's two words. You're like, well, thanks, Naomi. Thanks for the support. She can't. She's in the spirals of depression here at this point. Right? Watch Naomi's words as the chapter ends. She says in verse 19, and her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? I know. If my daughter comes home with an ephah, I'm going to ask that too, right? Where did you glean today, Arabella? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And that's where I would stop. I'd be like, why were you around a man? Right? Anyway, but she says, blessed be the man who took notice of you. She told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is, and this is anticipation, the author is doing this, Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. You want to be very clear the way this is constructed in the original language. The kindness who's not forsaken the living or dead is not Boaz's, it's the Lord's. This is Naomi. This is bitter. This is bitter. And here's what bitter is saying. God has not forgotten us. God has provided for us. So if Naomi, the bitter woman, knows who the hero of chapter 2 is, so should we. She sees God's faithful providence in these pages. So one last pop question. Who then is the one who restores Naomi's hope? God. God. Why is this happening? Well, 
It's because Ruth has chosen to dwell under the wings of the Lord. Boaz says that to her at the end of verse 12. Look, you have come under the wings of the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. David says this in Psalm 37. I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. I want you to hold your place in Ruth and turn to Psalm 91. Turn to Psalm 91. So turn to the right. Turn to Psalm 91. What does it mean to take refuge in the Lord? What does it mean to come under his wings? Psalm 91 says, here's what it means. It says this, beginning in verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. I love this passage. And you should know it is possible to distort this passage. How do we know that from the Bible? How do we know that it's possible to distort this? Satan used this passage to tempt Jesus, right? He used this very passage to tempt Jesus. And Jesus said, no, we don't presume. We don't put God to a test. We run and we're safe in him, but we don't test God. So it is possible to distort this passage. But what this passage is saying is when we find shelter under God's wing, it means that whatever storm is raging, it's he who shields it from us. You know that with a mother bird, when the babies come under the mother bird, when it is a cold wind that's blowing, the mother bird receives most of the cold wind, right? When there are large raindrops that are falling, the mother bird receives most of those. Several years ago, Tara and I, uh, uh, went to the LSU Georgia game, and uh, she was pregnant with Arabella, and it was the largest crowd that I'd seen. It was the year that LSU would win the national championship with Nick Saban, and and when we got on that campus and began to make our way to the stadium, I moved Tara behind me, and I led her through the crowd, because if there was anyone who was going to get hit, I wanted it to be me. If there was anyone who would absorb a blow. I wanted to be me as she came right along behind me. Two years ago, we went to Georgia, and we went to a water park, and Arabella loved this large bucket of water that when it got full, it would pour out on you. But she was still teen 90, you know, but that never stops them, right? They, they can do anything. And so she wanted to experience it. But Daddy, being concerned, I stood and put her in front of me so that as that water came over, it landed on her, but it had to come through me first. Friend, this is the beautiful picture of Ruth too, and the beautiful picture of God. 
tough things come into our life. But whatever comes into our life must come through him. He is the one who is sheltering us. He is the one who's leading. He is the one who will absorb most of the blows. And in that I say, lead on, Jesus. Lead on. In you I want to find shelter. I would say that we don't want to miss what Ruth 2 is is really preaching to us this morning. For those who take refuge in God, even the worst of circumstances is worked for our good. For those who take refuge in God, even the worst of circumstances have worked for our good. But don't miss this. If you don't take refuge in God, you should be terribly afraid and depressed today because you have no hope. There is something worse than famine and there is something worse than death and it's God's wrath. And the only way to be sheltered from his wrath is to be in his son, Christ Jesus, who took it and covered us that we might be preserved. Here's a few lessons in this uh, undeniable, unmistakable providence. The first one is this. God's providence is both mysterious and wonderful. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know how God sovereignly reigns over our daily choices in such a way that his purposes are fulfilled, but I know he does. I don't know how it works out that Ruth happens to be led. She's not getting any signs. She's just, this is where she ends up. And that Boaz happens to come. I don't understand all the intricacies, but I understand that God is sovereign over them. And his wills and his will and his purposes are accomplished. Here's why I don't believe in fate or chance. We are not those who believe in fate or chance. Acts 17.26 says that he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined and allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. It's no mistake where we live and when we live. God has determined these things. That's why I don't believe in fate or chance. Genesis 50.20, Joseph says to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So you have brothers who are doing some evil things, and yet simultaneously, God has some good purposes that he's working in this. I don't understand the mystery of how that works. I just know it works. I know that's what the Bible teaches us. In Exodus 9, verse 16, here's what I love, that God says to Pharaoh, For this purpose... I raised you up. Pharaoh didn't get on the throne because Pharaoh just put himself there. God put Pharaoh on the throne. There is no fate or chance. You've heard it said that the devil is in the details. Anyone heard that? I would try to correct us this morning to say, friends, God is in the details. God is in the true details. And what I love about Ruth, too, is that God is providing food for two impoverished widows two bankrupt widows, because he's going to use them to fulfill a promise he made to Abraham back in Genesis. He made a promise that he would have a descendant and descendants, and that through those descendants, the whole, the, all of the nations would be blessed. God is going to use these two impoverished widows as a part of the process of answering that promise to Abraham. Man, how this mystery all works together, I don't know, but it's wonderful and it's beautiful. Number two about God. God cares for the forsaken and the forgotten. In Deuteronomy 10, he gives regard for the widow, the orphan, and the alien. I don't think he means from outer space, but the foreigner, right? Someone thought it was funny. So uh, my question is, I pondered this, and I pondered God's law that these could glean in the fields. It just brought me this question. If God cares about the widows and the orphans and the foreigners, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we care about who God cares about? Shouldn't we give regard for them? How scary it must have been for these widows who were completely bankrupt. You, you do realize 
Israel did not always obey the law that the poor could glean in their fields. That's why they're chastised all throughout the Old Testament. They didn't take care of the poor. So what we see here is really huge that Ruth and Naomi, it could have been very scary. They had no food, and they could have gone to the field of a man who was mean. And they could have had no provision because not all people obeyed God's law, which just brought me to another realization of our obedience or disobedience always has consequences for other people. And because of Boaz's obedience, Ruth and Naomi are going to be blessed. Here's the last one. God is not interested in just changing our circumstances, but primarily our hearts. Primarily our hearts. I love the story when Elijah runs from Jezebel, you know? And so he runs. He, he, he has stood and faced over 400 prophets of Baal the day before. All these men, right? And so the big joke is you can withstand over 400 men. You, it's one woman puts you to flight, right? So he's running from Elijah. And so he goes and he ends up in this cave. And, of course, the, the wind comes and the fire comes. And, and all these things, it says God wasn't in those. It says he was in this still small voice. And I love that God brings Elijah out. And his basic question to Elijah is, what are you doing here? And Elijah's like, well, I'm the only one. And God's like, no, you're not. I have these people in this place. And he said, here's what I want you to do, Elijah. Go back the way you came. Go back the way you came. And what I love is God didn't change Elijah's circumstances. God changed Elijah. Friends, you probably brought all kinds of circumstances into this place. And my guess is none of that's changed when you go back out to your car. But could it be that God doesn't necessarily want to change the circumstances yet, but he's using those circumstances to change your heart. What if we stopped being the people who prayed, God, get me out of this, and instead we became the people who prayed, God, conform me to Christ through this. What if we became those people? This is God's plan of what he wants. Often it's our hearts that need to be changed. Let me close this section with one more perspective. Another pastor uh, said it this week, and it caught my attention. Because of what Christ Jesus has done for us, and I'm not denying that life can be hard, and I don't give Naomi even, I, I don't dog her. She buried a husband and two sons. That's tough. So I'm not going to dog her completely on these things. But here's what you can know because of what Christ Jesus has done. This is the only hell you'll ever experience. This is the only hell. So no matter how bad the circumstance. We can know that God is with us. He's working it for our good. And it will never be worse than this. The worst Christ Jesus took on the cross. So we don't ever want to forget that. Which then gets us to the last part of this passage. What we call undeniable kindness. There are three things working in in chapter 2. There's character. There's providence. And then there's kindness. The Hebrew word is chesed. What is it? Right. Not he said, but chesed. You say it? And chesed is all through the book of Ruth. The word is all through the book of Ruth because it's kindness, kindness, kindness. One of the places that we see, we see Ruth is kind to Naomi. Obviously, at the last verse, she lives with her mother-in-law. But Boaz, when he's talking in verse 12, he says, The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. Why? Because look in verse 11. Since the death of your husband, all that's been told to me, how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. We see Ruth's kindness to Naomi. We see it coming out. I would remind us here, Jesus says, look, those who leave mothers and fathers and houses and lands, 
for the sake of the gospel, we'll receive a hundred times. A hundred times. We see Ruth's kindness, Naomi. We see Boaz's kindness to Ruth in his words and in his protection and in his field and in his table and in the fact that she ate until she was satisfied. But I would propose to you that Ruth's kindness to Naomi and Boaz's kindness to Ruth, all of those are shadows that are pictures for us of God's kindness to us. I think that is the main part of Ruth chapter 2. In this, we see the gospel. Ruth asks a question that I think we should never stop asking in verse 10. Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? I love that Ruth, remember the humility? She doesn't presume and she doesn't go up to Boaz and say, you should take care of me. You're failing, buddy. Hey, you should take care of me. She's blown away that she receives kindness. And so should we be. I've put there in your outline, Ephesians 2, 12 and 13. Here's what Paul wrote to remind the church at Ephesus. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We should never forget we once had no title to the Lord's table. We once had no right to walk up to him and say, you should provide for me. You should give shelter. We want to be those who week after week, day after day, are blown away and say, why, God, did you give me mercy instead of wrath? Why, God, did you give me grace instead of judgment? We want to continue to be blown away. And then as you see what Boaz does, I would say that Boaz is just a shadow and the ultimate fulfillment we see in God. Why? Because it's God who invites us to sit at his table. It's God who speaks kindly to us. It's God who provides and protects us. And it is God who satisfies us in the deepest way. I love that it says she ate until she was satisfied in verse 14. Friends, we see that God is the ultimate picture of this. Here's what it brings David to. He says, your love is better than life itself. Your love is better than life. In your presence, fullness of joy. Your right hand are pleasures evermore. He says, my soul is satisfied when I think of you and all that you've done. So don't see Ruth and Boaz and Naomi. Friends, they're shadows to point us to God and Christ and us and the ultimate provision when we take shelter in the wings of God at great cost to him. But let me close with one final point of application. If we are those who have experienced such Chesed, then it should be evident to those that are around us. We see Ruth's kindness to Naomi. We see Boaz's kindness to Ruth. We see God's kindness to us. Here's my last question. Can the world see our kindness to them because of the gospel? Remember Galatians 6.10? Remember years ago when we studied Galatians Galatians 6.10 says, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Is the church reflecting the kindness of God? Here's what I'm wondering. Is anyone looking at us and keep getting confused with Jesus? Does anyone look at us and they mistake us and say, that looks a lot like Jesus. It should be. If we have received such unmerited kindness, then the same unmerited kindness should flow out 
as we have opportunity, let's do good to everyone, not just people who are good to us, good to everyone. This is the gospel, and this is what should happen as we go about our day. The question is, is that happening? So let me close in a, in a couple ways. If your character is not that of Ruth and Boaz, why not? If the fruit of the Spirit is being produced in you, you should look pretty similar to Ruth and Boaz and the things that they're doing and what's flowing out of them. And could it be that there's something in your journey that you might need to re- repent of today? Question number two, some of you are in the midst of some very difficult circumstances and you've lost confidence in God's providence. Be reminded here from the text today. And maybe today is not about change my circumstances. Maybe today the prayer is change me. Change me. Maybe the last one is, God, I'm calloused to the gospel. God, I'm not standing in all that I've received mercy. It's grown old to me that I'm in this field and your wrath is coming. And you give Jesus and I'm like, okay. If we're callous to the gospel, we won't make a bit of difference in this city. The gospel makes a difference in every day, which causes us to make a difference in this city. And is that unmerited kindness flowing out to everyone, including the most difficult people to get along with? Are we living Ruth too? I want to give us a chance to respond as we've done the other Sundays. And Shane will come and lead our time of response. And Kevin, Mr. Al, I'll ask you guys to be available just want to give you time. You may say, hey, there's something I'd like to pray about this morning. We just want to give you a brief opportunity to do that, and then we'll move on with our community time and announcements and closing. Father, we thank you for today, and we thank you for Ruth chapter 2. And, and Father, I admit when I see Ruth and I see uh, Boaz, I'm challenged by who they were. I'm challenged by their character. Father, I pray that we would be raising sons and daughters who are of such character because we as parents are of the same character. Father, I pray these traits that we see that you would produce them by your spirit in us. God, I thank you for your providence. I thank you that Ruth doesn't just happen to find the field and Boaz doesn't just happen to come at the same time because of fate or chance, but because you are committed to fulfilling your promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. And you or working that through the pages of the history that we see here in the Bible. And this is one part of that. And the story looks very bleak as it opens, with three women who are left widowed in a foreign land. And yet it's going to end with a providential baby, and a grandbaby, and a great-grandbaby. All will be pointers to Christ Jesus. I thank you for what we see in Boaz and his protection and his provision. Help us not to just see Boaz, help us to see you. When we come under the shelter of your wings, there is such protection and provision. There's a seat at your table that we never deserved. There's satisfaction like never before. Father, would you help the gospel to be fresh in our own lives? Would you help this chesed that we've seen and received? Would you help that kindness to flow out of us to all people? Thank you for demonstrating your love for us and that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. I'll ask you to stand this morning and just a shame plays. Maybe there's something you want to pray about. We just want to give you a brief moment to do that and then we'll transition to our community time.